0: The following dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in
1: Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
0: So now we're experts on desire, we can move to ill will. <laughs> so as I mentioned last week, a lot of the this fourth foundation of mindfulness that we're studying you know, because remember, this fourth foundation comes after studying mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling tone, mindfulness of the mind, so it kind of begs the question, like, what could be left? But first we learn, you know, this really the, the teachings in those first three foundations, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling tone, which is an aspect of the mind but a particularly relevant aspect of the mind, so the Buddha highlights it as one particular study, one of the four studies. Mindfulness of the mind, expansive mind, contracted mind. Mindfulness of mental qualities, or this fourth foundation, mindfulness of Dhammas, it usually goes untranslated. It's really about understanding the mind has a lawful natural dynamic. And so then the question is, so there's this, the mind isn't a thing so much as a dynamic changing process. Then the relevant question is, in studying the mind as a changing natural process, what allows this mind become an instrument for awakening, to see what it needs to see. Well, I mean, what we say is the mind has to abandon the hindrances, cultivate the awakening factors in a balanced way, and then awakening can't be stopped. Because awakening isn't something that you or I do, it's something that happens when the supporting causes are there. Just like being deluded and getting caught up in our negative thinking and whatever, superficiality, that isn't something we do because we're bad. That's something that happens because of supporting causes. Like one of the supporting causes for having a mind that keeps, you know, constructing thoughts that are painful to have, you know, spinning in unhelpful ways. What's the proximate cause for that sort of endless, unproductive, stressful mental activity? See, we should know that. I mean, you'll think as a human being, in my case, who's lived for 63 years. No, I know you have some ideas. But, but it's just interesting how we do kind of like a deer in headlights. I don't know. <laughs> but we should. And that's really the fourth foundation. The same thing, like if I had asked it in the other way, when you think about moments in your life where there was a beautiful balance, a lot of space, a lot of space of kindness and wisdom, and somebody would ask us, how did this, where did this come from? (laughs) This moment of the mind, the heart, being really clear, released. Where did that come from? we should know, like, oh yeah, when there's this, there's that, but the arising of this is the arising of that. That's seemingly, like, maybe it's paradoxical, I don't know, but it's it's really central. That's the sort of short version of the Buddhist teachings on dependent co-arising. When there's this, there's that. But the arising of this, there is the arising of that. That's just a... Fancy way of talking that things are lawful, conditional. So my mind getting all tied up into knots, it isn't accidental. When there's what is the mind is the mind entangled with the arising of what is the arising of my mental entanglement. When this isn't here. Being entangled isn't there. Without the arising of what, is there no entanglement, right? So that's the study of the fourth foundation. It's all about the lawfulness of suffering and its release, the lawfulness of that mental constriction, that burdensomeness we experience all the time unless we're oblivious, you know, because that's our basic strategy for dealing with the weight and constriction of the heart, is not to be there, (laughs) to be distracted, right? Because it's unpleasant to have a heart, mind, that's heavy and tight. And this is what inspired the Buddha to teach, because, you know, with his clarity after his own... Resolution of, you know, his own ignorance and seeing things as they are. He, as it's said in the discourses, surveyed the world and saw that oh, everybody, there isn't anybody who doesn't want to be free of this mental suffering that we mostly experience. But in wanting to be free, people do exactly. What causes mental entanglement. That's what the Buddha saw and that's part of what inspired you know even though obviously these teachings are subtle and the Buddha as it said at least you know in the legends and the tradition you know the Buddha was a little like oh it could be a little wearying to try to help people see what I've come to see. And, and then, but he turned a corner, you know, he, he really saw, uh, yeah, you know, we're all in the same boat. It's just that without clarity, without really developing the mind that can observe clearly the nature of the mind, the dynamic of the mind, how in trying to not suffer, the mind does exactly these proximate causes, when there's this, there's that, with the arising of this is the arising of that, the mind sets in motion suffering. And that's just a simple example of it. If I had a hard day, some you know, people said things that were upsetting to me or things that worked out the way I wanted them to work out. Um... Then there's that yucky feeling. And I don't like that yucky feeling. So even before I'm not I may not even be fully conscious, but I just find myself at the refrigerator because making some food and eating some food helps me not be present to the yucky feeling. You know, but there it is. After eating, now I'm feeling the unpleasantness of having eaten neurotically to not feel that ache in my heart. So I've got the ache in my heart. I've got the being too full. I need something a little bit more intoxicating. So I search the internet for something that will get my attention. And that's painful too. So then I, I need oblivion. So you know I'm gonna to go to sleep but I can't sleep so I'll drink a glass of wine or you know or this or that to to avoid the pain. And then I don't want to get up in the morning because it's all there, right? So i push the snooze button, push the snooze, you know, and until I'm, the fear is greater than my desire not to face things, right? The fear of losing my job or whatever. So I get up, but now I'm rushing, so I don't really have to feel what I'm feeling. And then instead of having an honest relationship with the yucky feelings, we project it all on the traffic you know, I'm feeling upset, I'm hurting, because you guys are such idiots driving, you know, or these people I have to work with don't know what the heck they're doing. Which changes how we relate to each other. It's another, leaves another heavy impression on the heart to be judgmental or hateful or blaming, right? It's just another and another and another layer, and you can see why is it so hard for us to just sit in a relatively comfortable way and feel what's moving? Well, because we've spent a lot of time running from that, and all that time running from that has laid down many, many, many impressions that are painful to feel. So it's, in this unconscious way, it seems to make sense to keep running more sense to keep running than to stop and face what's been set in motion by all the ways that we've been showing up, moment by moment. And that's really what the practice is about, is, is saying, I'm tired of running, I'm pretty sure that running, staying busy, reacting, seeking out dramas, intensities, to avoid feeling what's here and now isn't the way. Doesn't actually lead anywhere except more desire to run, to hide. So we start changing our life. It's like a it's a real lifestyle change. You think, oh no, I'm just committing to thirty minutes most mornings of the of the week, you know. But the thing is, you come in, you know, and we always joke about this, you come in, you get started with your practice and pretty soon, you know, you realize that uh, a lot of things start to change, like our relationship to other habits of destruction, basically, slowly, I mean, And then they reassert themselves and then they fade. You know, and we may it's not that we don't want a partner, but we don't imagine the partner's gonna resolve this. It's not that we don't want a nice car or promotion at work, but we don't imagine it's gonna resolve this. And this is what we're really interested in. Is there a resolution to this heaviness, this sense of lack, this anxiety, uneasiness, or whatever that particular existential uneasy feeling that when you're a little bit more settled and quiet is there saying, Hey, <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> I would love your attention. Got some I'm work here, honey. So when we, you know, think about like why the Buddha divided the, you know, the teachings on mindfulness into these four foundations, he's basically saying we need to learn the lay of the land. And just to keep it simple, there are three aspects of the lay of the land. There's embodiment, and you've got to transform your relationship to embodiment. It's just ordinary stuff, changing stuff, impermanent permanent stuff. It's just nature, and then you got to change your relationship to feeling tone. Feeling tone is an aspect of the mind—the mind, the thinking mind, the cognizing mind, the conditioned mind. It's always going to project pleasantness, neutrality, unpleasantness on every experience. Even if you, even when we have an experience we haven't had before, you know, I serve you a dish you've never eaten before even before you even taste it, just the sight of it, even if you've never seen anything that color before, that's food, you know, it's purple or something. There will be, your mind will project some kind of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling tone. And then same when you smell it, and same when you touch it, and same when you taste it, and same when you chew it and swallow it, there will be, an ongoing projection of feeling tone. So the Buddha highlights that this is really relevant to understanding the mind, is to see how much of the activity of the mind is a response to its own projection of feeling tone. And what the mind misses is that feeling tone is always changing. Like, When something is really unpleasant, how long does that last? So we study embodiment. We study this particular aspect of the mind that in Buddhism we call feeling tone. The way the mind is projecting. It's related to perception. You know, as we perceive, as we recognize an experience, there's a projection on it. Whatever the experience is. Like even right now, you may not, we may not be trained enough to recognize, but just whatever you're perceiving now, like being at Common Ground or hearing Mark talk, there's some feeling tone Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, somewhere between, somewhere along that spectrum. And generally, you know, if it's not clear, even when we check, then it's in the neutral category somewhere. But we, we may be calling something that's slightly pleasant or slightly unpleasant neutral just because of the lack of clarity. Like the mind may not be settled enough to really sense it's this moment's pleasantness or unpleasantness. That's okay. The key is to be interested. Then we get to know the rest of the mind that's not feeling tone, That's the third foundation. And then with the fourth, now that we know the lay of the land, now we're aware of the lay of the land, the mind and body, the present moment, but interested in discerning the causes for stress and the causes for release. And we can't really do that as long as the mind is getting pushed around by experience. So the first part that we're gonna spend the next few weeks on, abandoning the hindrances, it's like in order to understand, to realize the awakening, the natural awakening process, not do the awakening process, but to understand how the mind does that naturally. The mind, it's always this chicken and egg thing, right? Like when the mind's entangled, They can't really understand what needs to be put down. So this first step to sort of recognize the hindrances and to abandon them, it's really creating the ground to understand dukkha, suffering and and the end of suffering. We don't really see suffering when we're suffering. Another way of saying that, like just an example of being irritated, like irritated at traffic. But there's a a world of difference between me being irritated at the traffic or me being irritated because I have to wear a mask when I'm teaching, and being aware that irritation is like this. So that identity, being identified with the aversion, I'm, I'm upset, this is upsetting, I'm kind of tired of having to wear a mask, I'm ready for this to be done. That identification, that is like this, that feels like this. That's suffering. Mild or intense, just dependent, right? But when the mind is aware, like the object of awareness is, oh yeah, there is... This ill will towards having to wear a mask, this aversion, or this there is this desire to be together without having to wear a mask, and it feels like this. And there is this impulse to identify, so there may still be that uh, tendency to identify with that aversion or that desire, but that. Impulse can also be seen as something being known here and now. And in being aware of the impulse to be identified, we'll see it there, and then like everything else, that impulse will disappear. So that's a lot of learning there, just to see that the impulse to take these desires and these aversions personally, I don't have to be afraid of the impulse, you know, like with somebody you really love, a child or a partner or a good friend, a parent, you know, there's, nobody can make us angry, more angry than somebody we deeply care about, right? They do something or they forget to do something and it can be this molten lava. Often it's really silly, you know, like when we think about it with some Distance, like, but I mean, it's really like, and even though we may not be somebody who will hit, hopefully, the other person, our words or our absence of interacting with them, you know, the cold shoulder, it's a, it's a real aggressive move. And so that's what we want to see. It doesn't mean we want to act it out, of course. But we want to see, we want to have an honest recognition when lust arises. I've really been noticing that, you know, even at 63, you know, I'll see just out of the corner of my eye a little shape of a human being, you know, and it's like, I really feel that tug, oh, I really need to look, I really need to look, you know, that desire, like, when. I have no idea what it is even, you know. But there's something about the possibility of seeing something that the mind finds attractive. Or even with cars, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. But this is the study that we want to undertake these next weeks. I'll be uh, out teaching in the West Coast um, in Washington State next Monday. So Shelley Graff will be here and teaching on uh, aversion. But remember, you can't learn something about desire and craving and aversion and hatred unless you let it move. So this isn't about two weeks of repressing desire and aversion. It's about stabilizing and valuing present moment awareness. We know there are things that trigger desire. Anybody not know what triggers desire in your heart? If not, get to know. I mean, write it down if you have to. I was joking, not really joking, because I think there's some deep truth to it, but we were talking, I forget even the context who I was talking to, but about desire and uh, I think I have mentioned the group before, but about two months ago, when and I stopped eating refined sugar. There's been a few, you know, breaks. I, I did have a total of two muffins. This is my confession: two muffins. Had maple syrup the other day, and some yogurt. But mostly, you know, eating a lot of bananas and raisins, which are exempt because it's not refined sugar. But anyway, it's just an experiment, but just sort of noticing that it isn't even that I want ice cream or a cookie, it's that, it's the whole desiring, I just feel so comfortable being the one who desires, being the one who thinks about how I'm going to gratify desire, being the one who then, you know, once having a plan, undertakes the plan to gratify desire, it's, it's always a little bit of a letdown when I actually get the cookie or have the ice cream, you know, and if you really have that stable, uncompromised awareness, you'll see, you know, like as nice as the first bite is, it there's a kind of wisdom that understands how quickly the pleasure falls. It's actually, I think mostly, I mean, it probably depends on the particular situation, but if we could graph the pleasure, I think it peaks before we actually, just in terms of food, before we put it in our mouth, you know. And then it's like, because by the time we're about to eat it, we already know it's on its way out, (laughs) that it's limited. And, And there's something, we're trying to repress it, but there's some, at least in my case, uh, understanding that this is not what I'm hoping it to be. It's not a game changer for sure, right? The next cookie, the next bowl of ice cream, the next TV show, the next whatever, you know, what you're attracted to. It's not a game changer. But we have to really get interested. Remember how the Buddha talks about this. He was referring, like people would ask, how'd you do it? How did you wake up? How did you find so much ease and space and freedom and grace and generosity? And it was like, well, in terms of the pleasures in the world, nobody has studied the gratification of sense pleasure. You might have matched me, but nobody has studied it more than me, the gratification, right? So, when you have a nice experience, get really interested in it, be intimate with that. Nobody has studied the drawbacks of sense desire like I have, or as more than I have. I've studied as much as you can study it, and nobody has studied the escape from the mind's clinging, the mind's dependence on sense experience as much as I have, or as surpassed. So that's that's basically the curriculum, you know. And initial, you know, and desire is so central. So we need to in the next seven days, <laughs> and then forever, right? We need to get really interested in sense gratification. I mean, really simple stuff like the bell rings and we get to move, okay? Or maybe you were terrible and you moved before the bell rang, right? Okay, what was that like, that gratification, like being the rebel and moving the body or whatever you think that was? Or, you know, maybe just the mind going down a pathway where you're fantasizing about something, planning something, and then there's some little recognition, you know, this isn't what I'm supposed to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's okay, right? So we give ourselves permission. So that's a gratification too. So there's gratification all the time. Are we studying it? And then the drawback is just to see. It's it's kind of like to whatever with, with whatever clarity there is in the heart that recognition that the promise wasn't kept. You know, we gratified some desire. It it did deliver something, right? As the Buddha says in this discourse, if there was no gratification, people wouldn't have desire. So gratification is real, but <coughs> are we clearly aware of what gratification is? Can we have a more honest or realistic Uh, understanding of the experience of gratification and then when we see what gratification for what it is then all the whipped up the promise of having what we want getting what we want then we start to see the drawback more clearly okay this is the experience of gratification but this is what it took you know these are all the reverberations of being dependent or being identified with that promise. If you get this, then you'll be happy, right? So in a way the mind inhabits that identity. When I get all my yard work done, man, it's going to be really nice. Now there will be some gratification. But that promise that it will be very, will it really be very nice? Or, you know, as we straighten up one part of the yard, it just makes it more obvious the other parts that need to be taken care of, right? Have you noticed that? <laughs> the cleaner something is, the more you notice dirt. We cleaned up our bathroom the other day, and I was sitting there on the toilet seat, and I noticed that we, we got new washboards uh, when we did a bathroom renovation several years ago. And instead of having a rounded surface at the top of the washboard, it's just a kind of a normal rectangular piece of wood, you know, half inch wide, so but sharp edges. And I notice between the sheetrock and the washboard, it's like an excellent place for dirt to collect. And it's not easy to get, you can dust, but you're not going to get that out unless you, get just the right little tool or I was thinking a scrub brush, a little toothbrush, scrubbing every edge of every washboard in the house. And it was just because there wasn't other grime around to get my attention, so then it noticed that. So instead of the gratification of being in the bathroom that in some ways was spotless, you know, there was a little, three seconds... And then just the way my mind's wired, noticing what isn't yet done, right? How many times are we eating some delicious food, thinking about eating some kind of other delicious food? (laughs) Or the, you know, the other uh, example of this is being on vacation, planning another vacation, or being at a Buddhist meditation retreat and fantasizing about, oh yeah, I'm gonna do this all the time. What's the next Yeah. So this is the study of the drawbacks of sense desire. Just like all the reverberations that are stressful, that are impactful, that are heavy, that are related to sense desire the mind, the heart, thinking or feeling as if it's dependent on sense experience and getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't want. What are the drawbacks of that dependence? What's the consequence? And then the escape, you know, obviously is a little bit more subtle, like how do I, how do I, Realize a way of not being pushed around by my desires and aversions, by my likes and dislikes. Because it feels as a human being, a sensitive being, with sensitive eyes, that sees beautiful and repulsive sights and hears beautiful and repulsive sounds and who cares about the neutral stuff and touches pleasant touches and touches unpleasant things and thinks pleasant things and thinks unpleasant things, smells and tastes. It seems like a real set like what would that escape be? And that's we have the Buddhist pointing out instructions. And it isn't to pretend we don't care. It's really about deeply studying gratification, deeply studying drawbacks, and so, what, first what we'll do is just realize, like to do that, we have to we have, to have a, a mind that's not in the throes of getting pushed around by our likes and dislikes. Like to really notice desire, there needs to be some space around it to notice aversion. I can't be completely, the mind can't be completely identified but the thoughts, the aversive thoughts, right? Let me read what the Buddha says about um, getting some space, no longer so pushed around. Here's just a nice little passage. Larry Rosenberg, this is a book he wrote quite a while ago called Breath by Breath. And uh, it's mostly a book about the Buddha's instructions for mindfulness of breathing, but those instructions include the whole path. So he's here talking about working with desire and other hindrances. A certain amount of what we're doing, a certain amount of what we're doing is a kind of re-education a clear scene of what has been happening all along. You are the teacher and the taught. You can read books like this one, listen to tapes, go to talks. All those things aim you in the right direction, but finally you're not studying Buddhism, you're studying you. If you know all about Buddhism but don't know about you, you've missed the whole point. And then he gives some examples of some classes he taught with some Buddhist scholars who knew quite a bit, and somebody who was happened to be a Marxist, you know, and was very against spirituality and religion, but made really great progress because he just did the instructions, right? He practiced, and then he goes on. He writes, "Let's imagine that you do take an interest in your mind, and that in a given moment the mind is craving. You don't condemn it." You just see it. And you see that there's suffering in that. Maybe in the seeing, the craving disappears and if only for a moment, you're just with the breathing, you see how pleasant it is to live in a mind without craving. That simple seeing in the most naive way imaginable, as if for the first time, is a kind of organic intelligence. We suffer when we crave. Such learning can revolutionize the way we live. But just hearing about it is not enough. You have to see it for yourself. You have to do first-hand personal research. And that, in a sense, is the ultimate conversation to have with your Dharma friends, like, have you ever seen, have you ever seen, and from a balanced point of view, have you ever seen craving cease? Have you ever seen the mind empty of craving? Let me just reflect on your own life. And and it can be, have you ever experienced the mind relatively empty, relatively free of craving? What is the mind... Free of craving. I'm imagining most of you know that the the Buddha. That's often how he would define nibbana um, as the cessation of craving. The mind, or as Chah says, the mind that is free of grasping, free of craving. And that's another way to study desire. Like, instead of suppressing it, or, you know, stop it. (laughs) Just know that there's desire and be really interested. Will this cease on its own? What happens, like, if I don't gratify? That's the nice thing about the forum, where we sit still, you know, because everyone has multiple impulses to move. And we do, of course, move a little here and there, Sneak in movements, you know, and you don't want to get tight about it, and you don't—you definitely don't want to cultivate this oppressive overlord that's telling you not to move your body when you're sitting, because that's like creating a, your own personal hell. But it is interesting, in a in a compassionate and curious way, when you do have an impulse to move. Like, let's say there's a bug. But you know, you you have a pretty strong sense that you're not going to die, and you just figure, this is a really great little teacher right now, because I feel a very strong impulse to move and scratch or brush it off, but I know I can just see that, and maybe I can, maybe the desire will cease without having to do anything. Same thing with desire for food or the desire for whatever, will this cease without gratification? That's such a, that alone would be a great conversation to have with your Dharma practice. I had the strong desire arise early today, I stayed attentive to it, I was really curious about it, I felt it in the body, I noticed it. I noticed it when it reasserted itself, and then it kind of faded, and then I noticed it wasn't there anymore. And I had a little sense of the mind free of craving. The craving ceases without gratification. It's even interesting like with more existential things like fear of death, not wanting to die, wanting to be healthier, wanting to be younger, you know? Like that can get really poignant when you wake up and the body's stiffer, for those of you who are a little older, like myself, you know, and just the vitality's sort of a different place. And, uh, you know, or you see a really live, youthful person, you know, and just really good shape or whatever. And there could be that desire or that poignancy of aging And you just let it bloom like a flower or whatever, you know, it's like so poignant, so real, so true. But you don't feed it, but you don't suppress it, and then you let it cease. It will cease on its own, the whole drama about being older. We think, oh, no, no, I I need Botox, or I need to get my exercise together, or change my diet and only eat live food, or... You know, we have all these things to address the problem. But but the interesting question is, does the problem resolve itself? You can still do all those things, of course. But is the, the sense of lack something that needs to be filled, something that needs to be addressed? Does that sense cease on its own without anybody needing to do something about it? We don't know unless we get curious. And I really liked how Larry Rosenberg said that, you know, that simple scene in the most naive way imaginable, as if for the first time is a kind of organic intelligence, we suffer when we crave. And like the Buddha teaches in the Second Noble Truth, we don't, when we notice we're attached to desire, we don't scold ourselves for being attached to desire. We see the attachment, the identification to desiring for what it is. It's unnecessary. It's a cause for stress. But there doesn't have to be any hate or judgment in that recognition. It's actually an enlivening, insightful thing for the mind to see. Oh, yeah. When there's attachment, there's suffering. When there's attachment to desire, there's suffering. It hurts. Oh, that's really good to see. And you know, this is something to see even in our relationships. Maybe there's a moment where you're really adoring a good friend of yours or a pet. and, And you notice the mind is attached, the heart is attached. I don't want you ever to change, you little cute kitty or <laughs> cute partner or whatever. And um, you, you, you know, there may, on the surface it might be delighting because the cat, the person or whatever is the way you want it. But what's right behind it? You better not go away. You better not die. You better not change. There's fear. Oh, that's the drawback. Right, that's the drawback. And to just let, so so the whole world of suffering arose with the attachment, and then there's the recognition, and then the recognition of the attachment to desire, it's like the wisdom, the space of wisdom is there, and we're specifically not, we're curious about, will it cease on its own? Do I have to, like not even, you don't even need to teach yourself the Dharma. Sometimes we, we feel like, oh, i got to pull out the Buddha's words or something like that, or what did my teacher say again, or what did I read in that book? But just to be with the, the grip, and to be curious, like this grip is a grip. In, the, in other words, it doesn't seem this attachment to desire, the promise, like, if I get it, then I'll be happy, that grip is unnecessary, right? It's that, that's wisdom that sees this is the cause for suffering, it should be abandoned. But I'm not going to abandon it, I'm just going to study it. And then seeing attachment as being unhelpful is the cause for dropping away. That's what we have to see. And even though, you know, I mentioned in the guided sit that desire is really an anim- animating force in our lives, but we don't we don't need to generate desire, it's, it will be there naturally. We can just let desire move, and some of those desires are quite skillful, like the desire to develop a practice. It's not that different than other desires, it's just... In terms of cause and effect, it sets emotion something different than the desire for oblivion, like to get really drunk. So I don't feel. So we just need to study it and study what desires are and what they're not, and what desires are helpful and what desires aren't helpful. And what really helps is to have desire without neurotically thinking there's somebody that has to do something. And it's really best to start with really simple, ordinary desires that are here all the time. Like the desire to think when we're sitting. You know, oh, now I've got to plan this out. What well, do you? <laughs> That's called desire, you know. Just feel that. What's that like? To, because it's it's like a natural force. Like, oh, I've got to think that. You know, like a leaning you know, need to become the person who figures this out. Okay, let me just feel that. we not so much against doing it as much as the mind is interested in what the impulse is. And that's the key, the switch. Like when you want to study desire, you have to move the attention from the thing that desiring is desiring to the awareness of the desiring itself. That's the real, goes right to the heart of the study we're doing. We have to learn how to be interested in something. It's not even subtle, it's just not what we pay attention to. The mind is naturally interested in the object of desire, just like when, next week when Shelley talks about aversion. The mind is fixated on what we're averse to, what we're scared of, what we're angry with but not so easy to be interested in the, the activity of anger or the activity of desiring itself. But what's that like? What's it like to be desiring, to be wanting? What is wanting? What happens when I'm just aware of wanting without judgment, just studying nature? And like Larry says in this, you know, just to experience that moment where there was wanting, there was wanting, there's no wanting. Oh, this is the cessation of wanting. Even in these simple ways, you know, we're still a mostly a deluded human being. But there's a little flavor of the awakening of the Buddha. When we see that really clearly, it's it's life changing because the heart recognizes like, it's, it's kind of like the heart generalizes this little ordinary thing where there was this continuity awareness with wanting something, shifting the awareness from the something I want and being curious about the wanting itself, but just holding that, holding it, because the wanting, like everything, it comes and then it ceases And then noticing that, and in that the mind recognizes all of the self-dramas naturally cease on their own. It just, it creates this window into the possibility of not being gripped by self-dramas. Because what we normally think in terms of our path is I've got to get rid of all my self-dramas. But the path is actually seeing that self-dramas are naturally empty. They arise and pass and are not self. So. That's like the mantra from Ajahn Sumedho, one of my important teachers. Even though I did practice with him personally a lot, I just used a lot of his teachings over the years. I did get to go on one retreat with him. But, uh, you know, he would just repeat that all day long in his mind, in his formal practice. Everything arises and ceases and is not solved, as his little summation of all the Buddhist teachings. And you can just try that out. You know, when desire comes, oh yeah, this desire arises due to causes and conditions, it will cease and it doesn't refer back to anybody. It's just nature to give in the conditioning, to be desiring in the way the heart and mind is desiring, like a blossoming of desire, a storm of desire, lust, and then if it isn't fed, but rather just held with that non-judging awareness, it will cease and the mind will, wisdom will deepen because it sees desire as nature, something that comes and goes and is not self. So. so we have a little time for a couple questions. Next week we'll have small groups And uh, people online, feel free to just raise your digital hand. And people in the hall, I have the handheld mic. Anybody have a comment? Yeah, Tim, please start us off. Good
1: evening, my name is Tim. I just wanted to bring up uh, something that happened today that really, like, stuck out to me a lot. Hey, Tim, would you
0: mind using this? I want to make sure people... Here, so you could sit right on the platform, right there, and yeah, lunch folks. Yeah, something happened today at work that really is <coughs> noticeable about the effects of desire. I'm a physical therapist, and I was seeing people this morning, I feel really energetic and really like loving my job. <laughs> and it was going really good, and then at lunch, our supervisor told us all that everyone in the organization is getting a big raise.
1: And after that, the rest of the day, all of a sudden, was way more difficult because I'm calculating, well, I'm gonna make this much more money every day, and then this much more money every month, and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, it just seemed so much like, it just took all the energy out of what I was doing for work. So, if you've been seen yet, just to be wrapped up in those numbers and the desiring energy of money, so. Um,
0: it was, it was pretty interesting, but yeah, you know, it, was, it was difficult to, Thank you. Thanks, Ted. And we have somebody online that's raised their hand. I'm not sure I'll be pronouncing this right. Is it Rocky?
1: Yes. Um, thank you, Mark. Uh, my, I have a question. Uh, when we. Um, at these thoughts while we are meditating, uh, you know, like as we pay attention to the nature of desire, um, the mind is like thinking, there's words that are coming and there's kind of a a, sort of analytical, like logical, like, okay, what's going on? Okay, I feel this here. And uh, my question is, is that a skillful way to work, uh, where we are activating this talking mind. <laughs> At least I'm activating the talking mind.
0: Yeah, it's a really good question, and you know, it's it's going to be moment by moment. Like thoughts that are in the service of seeing clearly are useful thoughts, but it's if there's a fine line. Like even with so-called dharma thoughts. It's very easy for Dharma thoughts to lead into Dharma speculation as opposed to really taking the mind to the present moment. So it, it does take some skill. That's why like in the guided meditation tonight, I recommended that we work with one of our basic training grounds like the totality of the body, the sitting body, the experience of embodiment as one possibility, or a more specific aspect of the body, awareness of breathing in and awareness of breathing out. Because when we're aware of the experience of the breath, of the whole body, it's still the mind, still the desiring mind, the aversive mind. It hasn't gone anywhere. But all we've done is we've taken up this training, and if we've been doing that training for a while, It will stabilize present moment awareness because over the years of our practice with the body, with the breath, the mind knows how to be aware and with some continuity. So then, when desire, a stronger desire arises, gets triggered by some memory that's shown up, some idea, some sound, or whatever it is, and then, you know, there's some thoughts. But because there's some stability of present moment awareness, there's a chance to see that mental activity as, you know, see the energy, so to speak, behind it as desiring, wanting something to happen. Oh, wanting something to happen is like this. And you might need to experiment, all of us, we might need to experiment with using some mental noting, especially a daily life practice, just to drop in the question, is there desire here? What's the mind desiring? Is the mind desiring something? Does the mind want something to happen? Oh yeah, I do. Okay, what's that? Feeling. And that's a helpful thing is to come back to the experience of embodiment because when there's some desiring with attachment, identification, then energetically and viscerally It will be felt in the body. And that can kind of be an antidote to just getting lost in thoughts about the desire. To keep noticing, well, what's the feeling here? What's the feeling? When the mind is desiring energetically, what's that like? Oh, it feels like this. There's a kind of grip that we can feel energetically. Yeah, thanks so much for the question. Yeah, Sean. You want to sit up like Tim Digger? Sure, okay.
1: Hello, Sean. Again. And. Great, uh, hey, well, wait to you. Okay, very good. I, I wanted to point out with being. A, it was the area of feeling tones, um, they talk about the worldly feeling tones and the unworldly feeling tones, which would be like, noticing what it feels like to be free of desire or free of aversion or, um, like, feeling the, the good feeling of not having the intention of being generous or non-harming. And so I'm thinking that while we're also spending time noticing these more coarse feelings of distractedness, desire, there's also this background of equanimity, calm, that we can also be noticing as it's arising. And for me, it seems like it's, it's quite nurturing to, to be noticing that kind of more secluded aspects of mind and not just be tracking down all these you know, more intense feelings uh, as a kind of a way of keeping yourself sustained.
0: Yeah, and that's a great place for us to end tonight because Sean's exactly right. And that's why there's, in the tradition, there's so much emphasis on that stability of awareness that we call samadhi, because the learning just works so much better when the system is settled. And there's some of that inner pleasure of being settled. It's really hard to study desire when we're getting pushed around by greed and aversion. It's really hard to to study aversion when we're getting pushed around by greed and aversion because the getting pushed around really gets in the way of the instrument that's needed, which is the stable present moment awareness. So that's why if we get concentrated, live a life of... uh, committed to non-harming, so we don't have this painful remorse of, of having acted out in ways that have caused harm, and we have good habits, so the system, bodily, energetic, emotional patterns are relatively settled, then it's relatively easy to study greed and aversion. But, you know, if we're pushed around and attached and acting out, that's so easy.